There's a word which we use continually in, uh, in our present English language, which actually uh, either we misuse it or we're going to have to change the definition of it, one or the other. Uh, and that is the word awesome. We use awesome for everything. Everything to us is awesome. Guy makes a decent catch in a football game and we go, that was awesome. We've been to a concert, and we go, oh, that was awesome. Our second grader brings home a painting they made in class. We look at it and go, that's awesome, and we put it on the refrigerator. And awesome has come to mean things that we find interesting or exciting or fun, or uh, they just somehow strike us as pretty cool. But if we consider the word as it really is, here's a here's a. a Uh, dictionary definition of awesome. Inspiring awe. Now, you might have guessed that. That doesn't tell us a whole lot. So we better go and check what does, how is awe defined so we know what we're having inspired. Now, here is where we come to what awe means. It means dread, terror, the power to inspire dread. Emotion in which dread, veneration, and wonder are variously mingled as profound and humbly fearful reverence inspired by deity or by something sacred or mysterious. Submissive and admiring fear inspired by authority or power. Wondering reverence tinged with fear inspired by the sublime. Now, that goes a lot further than how we use so quickly the term awesome. And I use it, too. I don't mean this in any way critical. I'm just saying we need to really understand this word. And the reason we need to understand it so that it just doesn't sound so, eh, in terms of how we use the term, is as we move now in our study that we have been studying on the end times, we come to what can only be described minimally as ultimate awesome. For all those things that we say, gee, that's awesome, none of them begin to compare. Nothing will ever be the same in terms of awesomeness than that which we come to today. We are talking about something that is off the charts and it actually fits the real definition of the word awesome in terms of dread and terror and fear and wonder at the sacred. We've been looking now for these last few weeks, we've been looking at the end times. And we have seen that let's can we get that up paul can we get that up we have we have seen that initially the bible is written the greatest part the old testament uh, is written to the during the 1800 years of the people of israel it's about them from abraham on and then the rest primarily is written to and about the the people of the church age which for the last 2,000 years has been on the earth. We have noted we are here. We're at the end of the church age. What was the distinction? Why did we switch from Israel to the church age? Jesus came. And when Jesus came, his own people rejected him, and God altered his, uh, uh, his, his plan, if you will. He didn't alter it. He fulfilled it because he knew that would happen. 
But he then allowed the church to be born, where Jew and Gentile are, are together in the body of Christ. We saw that we're at the end of the church age and that the church age will specifically end when the rapture happens. This is Christ coming. He does not actually come to stay upon the earth, but we meet him in the air. We, indicated here by the star, we are taken up to be with him. The church rises with Christ. That is followed by a seven-year time frame called the tribulation. And the tribulation uh, we have been looking at, and what we want to do is look now and say, okay, it's a seven-year time frame. We understand that it begins with the birth pangs. It comes to a time of tribulation. Then it becomes the great tribulation after the halfway point. What I want to look at here is the fact that we are going to, we want to understand what happens at the end of the tribulation. Now, what we have identified for ourselves very simply thus far during the time frame of the tribulation, right here, we said, let's just take a look at the characters who were there. And we broke them up into two teams. We said there's basically the good guys and the bad guys who are, were, who are both uh, present on the earth at this time. The good guy team, the kingdom of light, is comprised of one, the redeemed, those who are responding to the gospel of Christ most of whom will probably be martyred for their faith during the time of the tribulation. It will be very costly to be a believer during that time. There's 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who are around the world proclaiming the gospel of Christ. There are two particular witnesses with prophetic judgment powers who can actually affect the rains that come. And they will, they will alert the world to where the real power resides. And then there is who is referred to as the woman who gives birth to the child, and that is the nation Israel. That's figurative for the nation Israel. The child whom she gives birth to is Christ. These are the good guys, if you will, during this time of the tribulation. Now there's a kingdom of darkness continuing to work during this time, and we have identified the characters within that kingdom. These are the players on that roster. You have the unrepentant masses, those who, regardless of what they see, how God is at work around them, say, we will not have him rule over us. And they will remain in rebellion. We have Satan, who we saw in Revelation 12. He understands his time is drawing short in great anger. He is cast down to earth. And while there, then he raises up under his power the Antichrist, who ultimately will fulfill what was spoken in Daniel's 70th week about the one who the abomination of desolation will sit in the temple of God, make himself out to be as God, and then he is supported by the false prophet, the false prophet who uh, causes people to worship the Antichrist. All behind the scenes of that, it's being empowered by Satan himself. The false prophet is the one who comes and he places the mark upon the forehead or upon the wrist, the number 666, so that you cannot buy and sell without it. And this is what controls the world at this time. And at this point, it actually looks like the bad guys are going to win. That's what it looks like at this time. The nation say, oh, who can war against Antichrist? And they willingly, uh, this charismatic guy, they willingly uh, give their allegiance to him. Now, what I want to point out for this morning is that these characters are identified with two different kingdoms. And if for this morning, if I could, I'd like to call them systems, which are both seeking the right to rule. This is what we're coming to this culmination to determine who is ultimately going to win in this battle that has been taking place literally since Genesis chapter 3, if we follow our Bibles through. And the tribulation is a time, as we get to the end right here, this time of an ultimate showdown 
between these two systems. Now I say an ultimate showdown because we've seen other showdowns. As we follow our Bibles through, there are other places where there's a showdown between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. I'll give you two. First one is Moses when he confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. As you look at those plagues that come through, you have to understand that each one of those ten plagues that were, that were uh, brought upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians was in an absolute contrast to one of the Egyptian deities that they worshipped. And God was saying, these are my people. I alone am God. And the ultimate deity in their worldview that he challenged was Pharaoh himself, who was considered to be a god. And he even took Pharaoh's son when the death angel came through on the night of the Passover to prove he alone is God. That was an intermediate showdown. The other one we just covered on Wednesday night, if you will, want to join us for our Wednesday night Bible study, we have a great time with that. And that is Elijah and the uh, prophets of Baal. You got one Elijah, you got 450 prophets of Baal. And the one Elijah sets out this confrontation. 450 prophets of Baal cannot call fire down from the sky to consume the sacrifice they put out there on Mount Carmel. But one Elijah, he prays, and God goes, and he consumes this entire offering and consumes the altar, consumes the water that was put around it. But these were intermediate showdowns, if you will. What we're going to have as we come to the end of the book of Tribulation is the ultimate showdown, which is why it is going to create ultimate awesome. This determines final outcomes as it will. So what I want us to note is the Tribulation will end with the fall of Babylon. I throw Babylon in here. We need to understand what Babylon is in the context of the overall picture of the Scriptures. Babylon represents that system that exists in rebellion to God. Go all the way back into the book of Genesis and you see the Tower of Babel. And that has always represented, from, from that time on, Babylon has always represented throughout Scripture, it represents rebellious man, man who does not want God to rule over him. And he has his system. Now the power behind his system, ultimately, we understand it, we get it, is satanic, it's evil, it's dark. But these, this end of the tribulation will bring an end to Babylon. What I want you to understand about Babylon, is, as the reason I'm talking about it now as a system, is that there is actually three parts that work in congruity with one another to begin with. There is first the religious philosophic part of Babylon. We'll read about that in chapter 17. In chapter 18, we're going to read about the socioeconomic part of Babylon. And then when we get to chapter 19, we will read about the political military aspect of Babylon as a system. These are the three sources of power, if you will, within the system. And the first one that I want us to look at, if we will go with us, is Revelation chapter 17, the religious philosophic. Again, Brenda encouraged me to slow down. She said, we can't keep up there. We're throwing too much out here. I, we're, gonna, we have to, we're gonna keep moving. 
This is not designed to be an in-depth study. If you want in-depth study on this stuff, there's a class meeting back here every Sunday morning, and Tim Kiviaho is leading that class, and he's doing a great job, and they're having a good time, and he welcomes you to come join them if you want to get more detail. But I will try and take this at a pace that hopefully we'll say, well, we're getting something, we're grabbing something uh, of what is here. Revelation chapter 17, we read this. Then one of the seven angels who came, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. This image of this woman is the image of false religion. It is the image of those who, who claim that they worship God, the true God, the God who is to be worshipped, but ultimately they have turned to worshipping themselves. It is the image of the Antichrist. It is the image of the one who sits in the temple of God makes himself to be as God. It is a horrific situation, and it is so godless in its import that if you will notice um, that she is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We have said repeatedly, those who come to faith during this time, good chance they're going to be martyred for their faith. And this false religious system is part of what is behind being empowered by Satan, is part of what is behind this killing spree that the religious system is on and saying, if you're not buying into our religious approach and our philosophy, we will take you out and many will be taken out. For the name of Jesus Christ. This is the false religious system of Babylon. But notice what happens. Verse 15. Got to make a jump. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, and this is further depictions of the harlot that are given, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so this, this harlot, this religious system, has significant power and authority over all of these peoples. And the ten horns, which, re, which re, refers now to more secular entities, the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So ultimately what happens, because God's judgment is now coming, friends, ultimately what happens is where the harlot, the religious system within the entire Babylon 
entity or, ent- or system, the religious focus of that now finds that the secular element turns on it. And it's God's judgment that, that, that it would happen. So Babylon, to a degree, turns on itself in terms of the different power centers. And those who are involved in the socioeconomic and the political decide, we don't need anything of this religious thing. And they turn and they consume it. And they destroy it. And they say, nope, we're not going to have anything. We will be entirely secular now in what we do with no religious uh, overtones necessary, whatever. Now, the Scripture is very clear. The reason they do this is God's judgment upon the harlot. Because of how she has has been martyring those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is how God's judgment is being played out as he turns the other aspects of Babylon in on the religious aspect and destroys the religious philosophic center. That's chapter 17. Chapter 18, we find the development of the socioeconomic center, which is part of Babylon. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, chapter 18, verse 1, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated burn. And we find this, this, this revelation that Babylon will fall. What does it mean by that? We, when it says Babylon is falling, well, as we're in this chapter, what we're finding now, it's a description of socioeconomic Babylon, this other power center, if you will. Drop down with me to verse 8. As now we watch this destruction unfold. And I heard another voice, excuse me, I think I want, this is verse 6, I'm sorry. And, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works uh, in the cup when she mixed and mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges. And so at this context, we understand she is so filled with herself, she is so filled with the fact that, that she is this economic power, and she has destroyed the religious center. She says, I am a queen. I will have no problems. I am completely in control. And God says, it's time now to judge her in all of the arrogance, and all of the rebellion, because she too is part of that system that destroys God's people. If we go a little further in chapter 18, and, and uh, you see a whole lot more as this unfolds. Um, well, let's just, let's just go a little further. Let's pick up a verse, continue with verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, this one who says she's a queen and she will have no problems, will weep and lament for her. When they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Notice this. And the merchants of earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. This is why, and repeatedly in here, it will reference the merchants. 
And this is why we say this is, this is socioeconomic. This is the financial center of the system which, upon which God brings judgment. And in one day, those who said, we're queens, we're going to reign forever. And one day, God tears them down and says, no, you're not. Because now you're under my judgment. And I will not allow you to go any further. Why? Why is God so, uh, uh, so insistent upon the judgment and the end of this system? Then a mighty angel, verse 21, took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. And once again, even within the social economic system of Babylon, motivated, empowered by, Christ, by, by Satan behind the scenes, Socioeconomic Babylon is the source of the martyring of God's people, is responsible for the death of God's people. And God says, you're done. <laughs> you are absolutely done. Your time has come. So, here we are. We see the tribulation. I'm sorry, Paul, can I ask you to bring that back just one time, buddy? The tribulation will end... With the downfall of Babylon, we've seen the religious, philosophic fall, chapter 17. We see the socioeconomic fall, chapter 18. And then, ultimately, the two are going to be tied together. In chapter 19, we'll see two things happening. We will see the end. I just want to tell you up front, and then we'll look at it. We will see the end of the political, military system because Christ personally now, will return. When we talk about the second coming of Christ, this is the event we are talking about. And this is the event that is going to be ultimate awesome. Nobody has seen anything like this and nothing will compare. And when we talk about fear and dread and terror, they are going to come as Christ returns. And He will not return, as we will see. He will not re return as uh, meek and lowly. He's not coming as the suffering, uh, as the suffering uh, sheep. He is now coming, you'll see, revealed in an entirely different way. So the tribulation ends with the fall of Babylon and the return of Christ. Chapter 19. Chapter 19, picking it up in verse 1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. And that's what we're watching see unfold, His judgments upon Babylon. Because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. And so there is, this, there is this proclamation of praise that goes out for the Father who now bringing judgment for those who were martyring God's people. And they say it is a just judgment that He brings because this is the very system that was putting to death those whom had turned to Christ during this time of the tribulation. And that was not allowed, and so they would be killing them. And there's at one point, in fact, if you look back earlier in the book of Revelations, where, the, where the, the, those saints who've been killed said, How long, Lord, is this going to go on? How many are going to need to die? And God actually says, uh, there's a fixed number. And when we reach that fixed number, then it'll be done. There's a line drawn. It's the end. No more will be taken. And that's the line that God meant 
Not, not like when we say about Syria, we're going to draw a line in the sand and something terrible will happen if you cross it and they cross it and nothing happens. God says, there's a line. There's a specific number. And when that number has been fulfilled and man has spewed out the ugliness of his hate and his wrath against God and the people of God, he says, then I'm coming. And my judgment will be just and right, righteous. And it will be ultimate when it comes. So he is praised for avenging the deaths of his saints. If we go down a little further to verses 6 and 8. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was given, uh, granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Two magnificent truths that are coming to the surface right there. Number one, remember the battle, the, the kingdoms in conflict, and the declaration goes out that the Lord Almighty, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent, reigns. And this battle that we have been watching unfold all the way from Genesis chapter 3, we now see because of the almighty power of God, he now is saying, we're done, and I'm going to cut loose on all that is evil, and it is over. And he is to be praised because of the magnificence of his power that is going to be shown in this judgment that is about to unfall upon political, military Babylon. That's number one. Number two, the army that comes with him, you'll notice in verse 8, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is not the righteousness imputed to believers because of what Christ has done. This is the righteousness which God has empowered believers to live in and to live out. And even in this time of, of great tribulation where they are to be martyred and when the cost of serving Jesus Christ is so very high in the world and there are those who say, I'm not, I'm not turning away from the things of God. I understand what's unfolding here. I know the difference between a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And it may cost me my life but I'm still living for the Savior. And it is that, that aspect of the righteousness that they did not turn away from the things of God, regardless of how difficult that it got. Do you know, if you stop and look back at the letters to the churches, repeatedly there's one phrase that is there, to those who overcome, to those who overcome. And this book of Revelation Part of why it's written, it is written in order to encourage those going through the time of tribulation to understand that, yes, it's a difficult time, but hang true regardless of how difficult it is. Because as you overcome, even if it means by living for Christ to the very death, as you overcome, Christ is coming back and you'll be with him. And you're, you're even giving your life for the sake of the kingdom will be acknowledged and recognized, and it will be a fine linen to you. And uh, that's the righteousnesses of the saints that are, being, uh, that are being expounded upon there. The people's works, as empowered by God, will there uh, be demonstrated. And I knew I was going to come to this place, and I knew I was going to have to make a decision, but I think we're going to want to stop right there, friends.
There's amazing things that are unfolding. The table is being set, if you will, upon the world stage, or the world stage is being set. Amazing things are unfolding. And this battle that has gone on literally for millennia is coming to an end in the description here. There's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser, plain and simple. If you come back and join us next week, we'll get a little more clarity on that. But I just feel like we would be very rushed and this is, this is something not to rush. But I just want to ask you, I want to ask you one question. I'm kind of having fun watching the I'm kind of having fun watching the Cubs because they're one of four teams left. Statistically speaking, the people who run logarithms on this so they know how to bet in Vegas are saying they've got the best chance of actually winning this whole thing. It's over a century since they have done that. Um, you look at things that give them power rankings and they're number one. You've got to understand they had the third best record in all of Major League Baseball and they've already defeated the second best record and the first best record. So of the teams remaining, they have the best record in Major League Baseball. It's amazing. It's fun to cheer for them. Friends, how many of us, I just want to ask this question, as we look at something like a sporting event, how many of us just really think it'd be very, very exciting to play on the losing team? How many of us in our dreams, what young boy in his dreams, when he dreamed about being a baseball player or a football player, or a soccer player. What young boy ever dreamed about my ultimate dream and my ultimate goal is to play on the losing team? That'd be exciting. I'd love to make the last out in the World Series which te- prevents my team from winning. Oh, that would be so much fun if I could be the guy to help my team lose. None of us thinks about that and none of us dreams about that and none of us wants that. Say, so, man... <laughs> I want to be on the winning team, number one. And number two, if I know, if I know for sure I'm on the winning team, this team cannot lose, cannot lose, I will play my heart out for that, won't I? I will do whatever it takes. I'm on the winning team, and this is going to be fun. Friends, you get the point. There's going to be a winning team and a losing team, and Babylon will fall. First, it will turn on itself as prompted in judgment by God. And the socioeconomic aspect center turns on the religious center and says, we don't need you at all anymore. That's a judgment from God as it consumes itself. And then God himself, when it's, when in, in its pride, as, it, as the socioeconomic center says, I'm a queen, nothing can, I'm going to do great, I'm always going to do good, you know, nothing can stop us now, we got all the power. And God's going to say, no, you don't, and one day, pff, the economy just unravels. The economy around the world, nobody's talking about it being in a great place, friends. Are we paying attention to that? Nobody's talking about we got a great economy. You read things that indicate that if America does crash economically, you can take the rest of the world with it. It's not a great picture out there. You think maybe the table's being set? I absolutely believe it is. And then we know from what Scripture has revealed, the third aspect of it will be overcome. And there's a winner to be declared here, friends. We already know who that is. Let me ask a question. Why? Why would we choose to play on the losing team when we know not only who the winning team is, but the implication of staying on the losing team? 
The implication of staying on the losing team is to succumb to the judgments that God is going to bring on the losing team, on the Babylon system. Why would any of us do that? When we are invited to be a member of the winning team simply by placing our faith in Jesus Christ because he's the champion. He's the one, the only one offering the remedy to our sin and the darkness in our spirits and the, and the thing that ensl- all those things that enslave us. Jesus Christ is the only hope of deliverance from that. Why would I keep playing on the losing team? When God says, I'll glad you take you on mine. Oh, friends, I don't know who here today has or has not responded to this magnificent invitation that is open to all of us. That says, you know, we're all sinners, every one of us. And uh, that sin, we're born onto the losing team. We're born into the Babylon system. Whether we like it or not, that's the reality. We're born with a heart that's in rebellion to God. And the only way we can be, be delivered from that problem of sin is through what Jesus Christ has done. And we receive a gift because we can't do it on our own. To as many as received him, the Bible says, to them he gave power to become the children of God. Have you received that gift? Do you understand what team you are clearly on? Because you're going to, each one of us are going to be on one team or another. There's no middle ground here. And the implications are serious. May God prompt every one of us to be clear on where we're at in our relationship with Jesus Christ today as to whether we have received such a gift. And if not, I beg of you, friends, as we watch the world stage being set for the end times, for the return of Christ, for all of what is happening here, I beg of you, don't let another week pass by. But today is the day to call upon Jesus Christ and ask Him. Ask Him to deliver you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, It is the most amazing, awesome, truly awesome even dreadful thing that we are watching, Father, as we see what the end times, how climactic they will be, as we see how, uh, how much death and destruction will be a part of it, whether by mankind in rebellion to you or your judgment upon mankind. But, Father, it is, it is going to be an awesome time. But you are right, Father, for judging. You are right for, for judging those who will be martyring your saints, Lord. The angels declared that you are righteous in the judgments that you bring. Oh, Father, we want to be on the right side of that judgment when it falls. And we want to be aligned with the kingdom of light, Lord. So I just pray for each one of us who already knows Christ that we will just affirm that and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. And I just cling to you. And as this unfolds, I want nothing other than you, Lord Jesus. And Father, if some of us here have never, ever embraced what Christ has done for us, I pray that this will be the day we say, Lord, it's... I don't, want, I don't want to be in the losing team anymore. I don't want to be under this awesome judgment that is to come. But I want to be a child of light, and I want to be delivered and be a part of your kingdom, and I want to be on the winning team. And Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need you, and I call upon you now as my only hope of salvation, my only hope of deliverance. Lord, may none of us leave here without that securely in our minds. May we recognize the greatness of who you are, how awesome you truly are. Not only in your being, Lord, but even in your judgments that are to come, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.